So we're in a series, today is week number seven in our series that we're calling One Thing. It's a series about the one thing that should be true in our lives. And I ask this question almost every week, if there was only one thing true in your life and everybody knew that there was one thing in your life, what would you want that to be? What would you want your one thing to be? What would you want to be known for as that one thing? And I've said that I want my one thing to be the same thing that is Jesus's one thing. I want my one thing to be his one thing. And so there's this verse that we've been looking at every single week so far. It's in Mark chapter 12, and it says this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating and noting that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus starts with the idea that God is one thing. But then he goes farther and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus gives two commandments, but says there's only one commandment and no commandment is greater than these commandments. For Jesus, the idea that God is one, that we should love God with all that we are, and that we should love our neighbor as ourself, is one thing. And it is the one thing. It is the most important thing of all the things. And so what we've done for the past couple of weeks is we've been looking at the details of each one of these phrases. What does it mean for us to love God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind? But last week, we started getting active. I said, what does it mean for us to love God with our strength? And strength is the only part of love that could possibly be seen. If I've got something going on in my soul, you can't see that. If something's going on in my heart, you can't see that. If something's going on in my mind, you can't see that. But if I am doing something with my strength, people can see that. So loving God with my strength is the love that begins to get active with it, the love that begins to do something with it. And of course, what does Jesus want us to do with our love? He said it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so today we're going to dig into that phrase. What does it mean for us to love our neighbor as ourselves? I'm going to give you another verse that we've referenced a couple times in this series. This is from 1 John chapter 4, verse 21, which puts a lot of it into perspective. It says this, God has given us this command, anyone who loves God must love their brother and sister. The idea is you cannot love God if you don't love your fellow human. And if you love your fellow human, that means maybe you're also loving God. But if you're missing love for your fellow human, you are definitely not loving God. There is no possible way to be a believer, a follower of Jesus, and not have a heart of love for the people around you. It's literally impossible, plus it's also commanded against. And so what we're going to do in today's message is I'm going to talk a little bit more in detail of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, whenever any pastor teaches this principle, especially if it's just a one-week-long thing, and by the way, we're going to spend some time next week on this same idea too, but anytime a pastor talks about love your neighbor as yourself, the easiest passage to jump to is a story Jesus told called the Good Samaritan. It's a story Jesus told because it comes on the heels of a guy saying, Jesus, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus, and then the guy says to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? But the text tells us something interesting. It says the man wanted to justify himself. He wanted to feel right about himself. He wanted to feel like he was doing the right thing. And so he says, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Now, on the surface, this is an incredibly important question because I want to highlight for you something that is abundantly true whether you think about it or not. You chose your neighbors. In almost every case, you choose your neighbors. You chose the neighborhood in which to live, 
wherever that might be. Maybe you chose to have your neighbors two miles away from you. Maybe you chose to have your neighbors basically in your front lawn. Maybe you chose to have your neighbors above you and below you, but you chose in some measure your neighborhood. And because you're the type of person who would choose that neighborhood, the other type of people who would choose that neighborhood are also people kind of like you. And so you have chosen to be neighbors with people who are kind of like you already. And when the neighborhood begins to change, people begin to complain. You notice that? When the neighborhood begins to change, people begin to complain because I didn't choose those people. I'm here first. Those other people are now coming in, but I'm here and and I didn't choose them. There's a fascinating thing about neighborliness. It's a thing that we love to use in kind of a Mr. Rogers way. But in our mind and in our heart, it only involves the kind of neighbors who fit the Mr. Rogers profile. We'd all love to be in a neighborhood with those people. And so the man says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Because he's looking for an out. He's looking for a way to identify that person is my neighbor, have to love them. That person, not my neighbor, off the hook. And so Jesus tells this story. And you know the story. You've probably heard it a number of times before. It's a common story. Jesus says there's this guy. He's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was a dangerous road anyway. He's on the road, and while he's on his way, some guys jump on him. They ambush him, some robbers. They beat him. They steal his stuff. They leave him for dead, and then they move on. And so here's this guy lying nearly dead on the side of the road. And then Jesus tells us that a priest comes by. And a priest was the highest of high ups. He was the guy in the Jewish culture who was like the closest to God, literally the closest to God, because he's the one who could go inside the temple to the holy place where the presence of God was known to be. The priest could be inside the temple. No one else could. But he was literally the one who was closest to God. And so he comes and you think, oh, this, this godly person, he might do something to help out this lowly fellow. No, no Jewish person would have thought that. See, you and I think, oh, mean priest guy and just walking past this, this poor dude who's laying on the ground. Mean priest guy. No, no one back in Jesus' day thought the priest was mean. Because see, there was a rule. God had given a rule that priests were not allowed to touch anyone or anything that was dead. It would make them unclean. And this guy bleeding out on the side of the road, he might be dead by the time the priest crosses over. And if he's dead and the priest touches him, then the priest is disqualified from his job. He's not going to risk that. And all the Jewish people, they all knew the priest should avoid that guy. No one blames the priest for his actions. And then Jesus says, a Levite shows up. Oh, Levites. See, all of the priests were Levites, but not all the Levites were priests. The the Levites were a whole tribe. The priests were a small group within the tribe. But the Levites were, they were the closest to the people who were closest to God. You know, they they were just the next ring out. They were the noble people, and they could touch a dead thing. They just then had to do a cleaning ritual afterwards. But here's this Levite, and he comes, and Jesus says, but the Levite passed by on the other side. And most of the people would have been like, well, yeah, he's probably heading towards some ceremony and he can't get unclean, so he has to, you know, maintain his dignity. We wouldn't really expect a Levite to help, but he he could help, but we wouldn't really expect a Levite to help. And then Jesus says the word that made everybody in the crowd shudder. He says, and then a Samaritan, and he didn't have to say anything more. Just by saying then a Samaritan was exactly the same for some of you if I had said, and then a Democrat. Or if I had said, and then a QAnon supporter. Or if I had said, and then a Republican. I could have said any one of these target words and someone in the room would have felt the same way that those Jewish people felt when Jesus said, and then a Samaritan. The shudder goes through the entire crowd because all of these Jewish people, they know that Samaritans can't do good. Samaritans are subhuman. Samaritans are the people who aren't worth anything, and you would never, even though the Samarians, the the land of Samaria was literally next door to Israel, making them neighbors, 
all of the Jewish people would be like, those people are not worthy of love. And wouldn't you know it, the Samaritan, in the words of Jesus' story, becomes the person who flips the script on everything. You'll also notice in the story, the Samaritan never becomes worthy of love. Something else happens. The Samaritan shows up on the scene and Jesus says, he goes over to the man, he binds up his wounds, he puts him on his own donkey, he carries him to a hotel of some kind, an inn of some kind. And inns back then were extraordinarily rare. They were mostly just brothels that you would leave a person in. But this guy finds a real true inn, which must have meant it was insanely expensive. And he leaves the guy there at this inn and he says to the innkeeper, I will pay for his entire bill, but I have to go and continue the journey that I was working on, and I'll come back, and I will pay you back for everything that goes on. And so you think, okay, uh, the Samaritan, he did a noble thing, but I mean, he's still helping out a Jew, and we all know the Jews are help-outable. You know, the Jews are people worthy of love. And so the fact the Samaritan helps out this Jew, that's an okay thing, because Samaritans, they should get their act together, and they should start helping some. But still, he's a dirty Samaritan. Until Jesus does this at the end of the story. He looks to the other guy and he asks him this question from Luke chapter 10. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And with this question, Jesus flips the script entirely. You see, the, the verse says, love your neighbor. Identify the neighbor, and then you know whom to love. Love your neighbor. But Jesus does something different. He doesn't say who loved their neighbor. He says who was a neighbor to the man who fell down. See, we think he's, we think he's the guy who's showing love to the person in the ditch, right? The Samaritan is the one showing love to the person in the ditch. But Jesus has put it almost backwards. It's like the guy in the ditch is the one who's supposed to love. Who's the one who is being the neighbor? Jesus, you're flipping the script on us. This is backwards. But he's doing something amazing. And the man replies back to Jesus. He says, well, I guess the guy who helped out the man And Jesus says, you're right. And he says, go and do likewise. See, Jesus flipped the command. The original command was love your neighbor. Jesus' command is be a neighbor. Another way to put it is this. The neighbor in every story is me. So that means everyone is my neighbor. I bring neighborhood with me wherever I go. I am neighbor. I am the neighbor. And so when I walk into a context that is different from me, I'm bringing neighborliness with me. I'm bringing the whole neighborhood with me. I'm there, therefore, I'm neighbor. Therefore, everyone around me is my neighbor. Because neighbor goes where I go. And Jesus flips it entirely. Now, of course, there's an obvious problem with this. If I bring neighbor everywhere I go, then that means I'm supposed to love like literally everyone. And that's annoying. That's, let's be honest, no one wants to do that. I mean, everyone, the whole idea of the neighbor principle is to have a loophole right? The whole concept. Who's my neighbor? I want to adjust to myself. The whole point of having the neighborhood standard is so that I can have a loophole. So let's just be honest. Those other people, they're they're just not like me. They're, They're not. I want you to think for a moment about those people. You know who I'm talking about. Them. You know, those people. I'm not going to name them because you all know who your individual those are. Those people, the them that you're thinking about. I want you to think about them and I want you to think about a list of all the ways they are different from you. I mean, for crying out loud, they like the Patriots. <laughs> they, 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 drink, they drink that bubbly, fruit-flavored water. 
that they have to pay money for? They, these, these, those people, I mean, those people, they're the, they're the people who drive those little quiet electric vehicles or the people who drive those super loud, like giant behemoth vehicles and not the middle of the road, reasonable vehicle, like, you know, the rest of us are driving or something. Those people, you know, those people, maybe for you, those people are the people who drive the middle of the road vehicle. Who's always in the middle of your road. And you're like, I want to, I need to get around this person. Stop being so average, be slow or fast. You know, (laughs) maybe for you, it's one of those people that they're just, they're just so different from you. They voted Democrat. They voted Republican. Or for crying out loud, they threw away their vote on a libertarian. And you're just so irritated. You're just so irritated with those people who are doing those things that way. You know what I mean? I want to ask you to flip the story just a little bit. Because for some reason, whenever we think about the differences between us and other people, we almost always, maybe you're different, but, you know, maybe I'm unique, but uh, we always tend to think of the fact that I'm the standard and the other person is the aberration. I'm the one who's doing the things the right way, the smart way, the normal way, and the other person is the person who's weird. The other person is the person who's doing something non-standard. If you think about that, you come up with all the reasons why the other person is degenerate. I mean, the reason they like the Patriots has nothing to do with the fact that they were born in Boston and everything to do with the fact that they just are cheaters. You know, they're just the kind of people who cheat and they love cheaters. And so that's why they love that particular football team. And your football team would never cheat. Your football team would never do any of those things. And that's the reason, you know, you find a way to label them as different. And then once you've labeled them as different, you then can label them as degenerate. So I want to ask you, what are the things that you're not saying about yourself that makes you the standard, that makes you right. I'm so different from them because I, and then you'd never mention your football team. You'd never say the reason I'm normal is because I like whatever your team is. You'd never use that as a standard. You'd never do that. You wouldn't say the reason I'm normal is that I drive a Toyota. You'd never... You'd never do that. Like, that's not your standard for living. We use them as negative standards for the people that we don't like, but we don't ever use those same things for us. No, for you and me, we say things like this. Well, I'm a believer. I follow Jesus. That makes me a good person. I know right from wrong. I know truth from falsehood. I'm a person who loves other people. Those other people, they don't love other people. But I'm a person who loves other people. And, and I just, I can't stand those other people who don't love other people, but I love other people. And you, you label yourself with all of these positives. Now, granted, there are some of us who are in the room, some of us watching online who have kind of a negative opinion of yourself and you're just always self-judgmental. But at some place in the midst of all that, when we identify the difference between me and the other people I don't want to love, I'm the one who tends to come out shiny. And they're the ones who tend to come out stained. And Jesus says this most amazingly weird phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew chapter 5, just to put a pin in this idea, Jesus says this, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Jesus is saying that if you want to be the kind of person who demonstrates a life that is infused by the life of God, then your life will be different from the people around you. But the people around you follow this same basic principle that all of us are tempted to follow. Love who loves you, love your people. Don't love the other people. Love your people. 
And so Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you want to be a representative of God in heaven, you're going to do something different from the rest of the world. You're going to love the people who don't love you. You're going to love the people who are not your people. In fact, I'll phrase it this way. Go ahead and write this down if you're taking notes. Jesus tells me to love other people. But I want you to write other in like mega capital letters. Jesus wants me to love other people. You know, the them people, the other people, the people who are different from me. They're not like me. They don't like me. They don't love me. They're all those other people. But you know what? It's easy for us to say that. It's hard for us to do it. And so what I want to do today is I want to give you a, a few little bits of guidance and advice. Uh, it's a combination of stuff that I've learned just in my life. It's a combination of stuff that I've learned the hard way. And it's a combination of stuff coming out of Scripture. And I want to give you these statements to try to help you and me reach that level of removing not like me from my vocabulary. Removing the idea that they are not like me. And to begin to embrace the idea that everyone is like me. And to begin to embrace the idea that everyone is my neighbor and I have chosen to live with all of these people, no matter what they look like. They didn't come into my neighborhood. I'm bringing my neighborhood to them. We're going to try to become people who get rid of, who eliminate the not like me way of thinking. And so here are a couple ways for us to do that. The first one is this. I want us to be people who listen. And I'm not talking about listening like I heard you and now I've absorbed it and now I tell you why you're wrong. I want us to be people who listen all the way. Listen all the way to the point where you know their story where you don't just know their story, where you can follow their logic. Not just where you know their story and you can follow their logic, but where you can feel their feelings. That's a kind of listening that goes way, way beyond the normal. Now, I've done a number of um, sessions in premarital counseling with people and postmarital counseling with people, and I, I haven't done much of it recently, largely because there haven't been a lot of weddings during the COVID season in my life, um, but also because I just simply don't like it. I get too irritated with people, and I start telling them what they need to do rather than you know trying to love on them and care for them, and so I've recently started recommending that they go to my buddy who's a professional therapist, and then you know I'll teach them the Bible, but I'm going to let this other guy sort of nurture them a little bit. But I know some principles. I know some principles of premarital counseling, and one of the things is teaching people how to listen. Now, in the psychological world, it's called active listening. Have any of you practiced active listening before? It's a technique employed that is simultaneously brilliantly powerful, but also if the other person knows you're doing active listening when you're doing it, it can sometimes rub them the wrong way, and so that's also weird in its own way. But nonetheless, here's how it works. I'm going to give you a free lesson in psychology today, and so if you want to jot these things down, you can. It's fine. But here is active listening in a nutshell. The other person talks, and you don't. Okay, that's step one. When they are done talking, meaning that you have allowed them to finish talking, as opposed to deciding when they're done talking. When they're done talking, then you say these words almost exactly this way. I hear you saying, and then you fill in the blank with something they said. And you're allowed to do a tiny bit of summarizing, but only a tiny bit. In most cases, especially if the relationship is messed up, you want to repeat verbatim what they said, at least what you thought was the most important part of what they said. You just say, I heard you say, and then you fill in the blank with what you heard them say. Then, this one's powerful, you ask them, is that right? I heard you say, is that right? Or even better, did I get it? Did I understand you? 
and give them the freedom to tell you that you are way off, that you didn't get it at all, you don't understand them in the slightest. And so then that goes back to the top, you know, listen till they're done, say, I heard you say, then you say, did I understand you? And then depending on their answer, you might go back and repeat again and again until did I understand you elicits a yes. Once they say yes, then you go on to the next question, the final question, which is, is there anything else? And then you go back to the top and you repeat it all over again. And you do this thing over and over and over again until you understand them. And the point is not to get all of their words out of their face so that you can finally start talking again. The point is for you to literally actually understand what they're saying, what's going on inside of them. Keep them going in the dialogue until they think you get it. That's tough. But it's even harder if you're a believer because believers need to go one step farther. Believers need to go one step deeper. It's not enough for us to just understand them. We want to be able to love them as ourselves. And the only way to love this other person as myself is if somehow I can get so deeply into their shoes that I don't just know what they're saying, I also know why they're saying it. And I also know what's going on in their heart, what's their experience, what's their story, what are their feelings associated with it. And so for a believer who's really trying to love them as yourself, you step all the way into their perspective and you do this last little piece. You try to figure out a way to make their argument for them. In other words, until you can argue their point, you haven't fully understood it. You have to be able to say, I now know exactly what you're saying to me now. And I also know why you're saying these things. And I have all these reasons. And if all of those reasons were true for me, then I would also think the thing that you think. And you put yourself in their shoes. If all of those things were true about me, if I had lived your life, if I had experienced your experience, if I had seen the things you've seen, if I had thought those things, if I had read those things, if I had known those things, if I had been where you are, I would agree with all of you. And until you can get to that place, you can't love them because they're in a different place. I don't have a tidy little Bible verse for this other than the fact that a couple times in Scripture, it's like, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Don't get your own emotions into it until you fully understand their emotions. You've heard it said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. We have to be that kind of person who deeply enters into their world. That's loving them as yourself. And you're like, but they're not like me. And I'm like, point. Because as a matter of fact, the only people I can love as myself are the people who are not myself. The people who are like myself, they're already as myself. So I don't have to do anything to love them. The as myself thing has already happened. It's all the other people who are not as myself that I have to do work on. And that's where the command shows up. And so we do the work. The first thing is we have to listen all the way that we can fully be inside their perspective in such a deep way that we can sympathize, saying, if I were you, I would hold the exact same view. If the relationship is strong enough, maybe there will be an opportunity for you to share why your view is still different. Maybe there will be an opportunity for the two of you to find some middle ground. But Jesus in the greatest commandment doesn't say, love them until you find some middle ground. He doesn't say, love them for a few minutes. And if they don't come around to your way of thinking, then let them go. He doesn't give you any of that other stuff. It's just love them as yourself. And so they might never come around to even listening to you. But it's your job to enter into their world nonetheless. That's the first one. The second piece of advice that I would give you um, kind of leads from a story of mine. There was, a, uh, there was a thing that Indiana did a number of years ago called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Are you familiar with this law? 
Um, back in the days of Bill Clinton, there was a law that was passed called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the idea was that judges should use a particular category of evaluation when they were deciding how to weigh religious rights against other rights. And the the evaluation criteria was something called strict scrutiny. This is a legal term, right? No one in this room cares about what strict scrutiny is. None of you are judges. But it was a law that said judges should use strict scrutiny when they were evaluating claims of religious freedom versus other sorts of freedoms. That was signed by Bill Clinton. It was kind of like, fine, okay, whatever. And then no one really made much of deal about it until around five, ten years ago, when there were some Christians in the United States who began to get afraid that they would be sued by people who didn't share their worldview because they didn't appropriately do the things for the other people that their business claimed they would be willing to do, like baking cakes and making designs and stuff like that. And so there was this big hullabaloo about Christians being afraid that they could go get sued from discrimination kinds of things. And so a number of different places, including the state of Indiana, created mirror images of the law that was a federal law called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And that was signed into office by um, our own Mike Pence. And it was one of these things where it was like, okay, there it is. We now have this new law and Christians all over the place were cheering and everything, but a lot of other people weren't. And so a forum was held downtown. And I was invited to join it. And the forum was a couple mayors, a couple people who were advocating for LGBTQ plus rights, and me, the sole representative of the Christianity point of view. The sole representative, I should say, of the conservative, North American, evangelical, predominantly white point of view. Um, There was a pastor of another church in town, but I wouldn't label him the same labels that I label myself. But we're there. We're sitting at this table. And we're all having this conversation. And I'm trying to be the most magnanimous, loving, most noble, clear-headed, clear-thinking person I can possibly be, demonstrating how this law doesn't really discriminate against anyone because all it's really doing is it's changing the kind of suggestions we give to the judge in the case that's going to come someday in the possible future about a lawsuit about some baker who doesn't want to make a cake that they don't agree with. And I'm like, you know what? Just, we, we want to, you know, and I'm trying to be this kind of guy. And there's this one moment when I thought I was really clever. I was really going to just, I was just going to really say the thing that made everyone in the room go, oh, now we can all love each other. And I was ready to do it. And so I waited for my opportunity and then it came and I was like, okay, I believe that all of us need a little help sometimes. I believe that all of us are broken on the inside and we need someone who can come and help us. And I was about to say, and I believe that person in my life has been Jesus, who has given me the ability to rise above the brokenness in my own life. But I never got that far because when I said, and I believe we're all broken inside, the crowd booed me. And I was like, wait a minute. You don't think that human beings are messed up? You don't think that we're broken on the inside? And it was one of those moments where I had to listen to someone who had a point of view that was different from mine. Because see, my point of view says, we're broken, we're messed up, we need a savior. But their point of view was, no, I'm not broken you're broken for not accepting me for who I am. I'm living my truth. I'm living my life. And the people who can't accept me are doing that because they can't accept them. If we could all just accept ourselves and be willing to accept each other, then the world would be better. It's not me who's broken. It's the system that's broken. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is a completely new way of thinking about this stuff. This is a completely different perspective. This is something that I get to choose whether or not I'm going to judge them or love them as myself. And it has been years for me to try to wrestle with what that means. 
But what I know now is that there is a commitment we need to make that is a commitment extraordinarily difficult for Christians to make. And it is that once I understand who that person really is, maybe they're a person who doesn't even believe some of the fundamental things that I believe about the nature of humanity. But once that person, once I understand that person, I need to make a determination to love that person. Not my imagination of that person. Not the person I hope they would be. I need to love that person. These people who boo me because they don't share the same worldview as me, I need to love those people. I need to love the people where they are. You see, the point is, they were booing me because they believed the problem was Christians couldn't allow other people to be other people. And you know what? They were booing me because they were right. Because, let's be honest, for far too long, Christians have been people who will not let other people be other people. We want other people to be like us. We believe they're going to go to heaven if they're like us. We want them to come into our fellowship, into our family. We want to bring them on in. And because we think that by coming in here, they're going to experience Jesus. They're going to experience a transformation in their life. And they're going to then experience heaven afterwards. But guess what? They don't believe that. And so getting them to act that when they don't believe it is not helpful. That is literal domination. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, love them by pressuring them into all things Christianity. He says, love them as yourself. If you were standing in their shoes and you were that person and you had their worldview and you had their perspective and you had all those things that they've experienced and are, and are dealing with, if all that was true about you and if you had seen Christians the way they see Christians, what does it mean? What kind of love would you want? What kind of love would be love to them? But you know what? That's a problem for us because, see, we know we're right. I mean, we know, we know that there is an eternity. We know there is a heaven and a hell. And there's this weird, we know there's this weird temptation, this weird feeling inside our hearts where it's like, mm, if I love that person as they are, then I'm endorsing who they are. And if I'm endorsing who they are, I'm endorsing what they think of themselves. I'm endorsing, I'm supporting all the things that they think are true about the world. And if I love that person, then I'm supporting all of this and all of this and all of this and all of this. And that means I'm watering down the gospel. And that means I'm being soft on salvation. And that means I'm being overly progressive and weak and all of this stuff. And no, I want to be one of those people who speaks the truth in love, but the truth. And I want to be one of those people, you know, who tries to, you know, win them to faith and bring them to salvation and all that stuff. And you can't bring a person to salvation unless you tell them they're lost, right? right. Except that Jesus didn't do that. In Luke chapter 10, I want to show you this passage. It's fascinating. Luke chapter 19, excuse me, verses 1 through 10. It says this, Jesus entered Jericho. Huh, a thing happens in Jericho. Just a side note. But anyway, Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And the only way you get to be a chief tax collector is to be good at being a tax collector. And the only way to be good at being a tax collector is to get more money for the government than they think they're going to get. And the only way to get more money for the government than they think they're going to get is by extorting the people to give you more money than they should give you so that then you can give it to the government and keep a whole bunch for yourself too. And that's how you become the chief or a chief tax collector. And he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Keep going. It says, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Pause just for a moment. When Jesus says, I need to go to your house, literally everyone in the crowd is like, <gasps> and they're thinking two things. Some of the people are like, oh, Jesus is not a good guy. 
he's going to hang out with the tax collectors. Those tax collectors, they're dirty, rotten scoundrels. Those tax collectors are terrible people. No one would want to be around them. Those people, no. No one would want to, no good person would even go near a tax collector, let alone go inside their house and eat all their tainted food. Oh, so gross. But then there are other people, and I'm certain there were other people, and they were like, get him. Get him, Jesus. Let him have it. Go over to his house and then just ream him with all the truth you got. You know, and they're just vindictive. But let's keep going. It says this. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner, right? And different people have different ideas about what that's going to mean. But Zacchaeus, okay, now hang on a second. It says Zacchaeus stood up. He was in the tree. Jesus said, come down, go into your house. Then it says Zacchaeus stood up. And that's because Luke has left out of the story the entire meal, the entire dinner. The people see Jesus and Zacchaeus go to the house, and then Luke doesn't make it into the house, at least the story, the narrative, doesn't make it into the house until way later, at the end of the dinner. And Zacchaeus stands up. And says to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anyone, uh, uh, anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, quick question here. What did Jesus say? You know, can't you just picture it? Jesus sitting down at the table. Zacchaeus, I got a bone to pick with you. You've been a bad guy. I mean, you've been taking advantage of your fellow men. You've been ripping people off. You've been stealing from them. You've been enriching yourself. You've been building up all this wealth for yourself. You, let's just be honest, Zacchaeus, you're a jerk. You're a bad guy. And the only reason I came over to your house is because I wanted to get you all by myself in this private little space where no one could hear me tell you the things that everyone wants me to tell you. That doesn't seem right. Like if everyone wants you to tell someone off, don't you tell that person off in front of all those people who want to see you tell that person off? Does Jesus then say something completely different? Like Zacchaeus, you know you're going to hell and I want to help you come to faith in me and and receive me into your heart and and pray this little prayer. He doesn't do that either. You know what's fascinating? Luke skips over the entire conversation. You know why? Because it's unimportant. What Jesus says to Zacchaeus is meaningless after Jesus said, I want to go to your house. Because the act of going to his house was an act of love, unlike anything else those people could understand. And that's the only thing that mattered. The love Jesus was showing to Zacchaeus, that's the thing that transformed him. And so look what Jesus says at the end of the passage here. It says, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Yes, he was lost. But the word lost shows up at the end of the whole story. How did Zacchaeus come to know that he needed to change? It wasn't through some graphic description of how evil he was. It wasn't through anything other than looking in Jesus' face and seeing that he loved him. Listen, some people, when they meet Jesus and they encounter his love, some people judge Jesus. They blame him. Jesus, that's too soft. Jesus, that's too weak. Jesus, that's that's beyond what we can accept. You're going to eat with a, a sinner. You're going to eat with a tax collector. That doesn't make sense. Some people see the love of Jesus and they blame him for it. Some people see the love of Jesus and change. Zacchaeus is like a can't believe I'm being loved. You know what? I'm going to change. I'm going to be a different person. You know what, Jesus? If you can love me, I can return the favor. I can love someone else because it's in the contrast of the love of Christ that the world gets divided into those who can accept him and those who can't. And those who can't accept Jesus are the ones who reject his love 
even when he gives it. And those who can accept Jesus are the one who receive his love when he gives it. And if you were interested to know, salvation doesn't come through someone getting the right doctrine. Salvation comes when they experience the love of Jesus and respond to it. And so Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. It's an amazing amazing story that for you and me feels like too soft, but for Jesus, it's the only way. And so the next thing I want to give you by way of advice is to remember that love is my job. Both judgment and salvation are God's. Love is my job. Judgment and salvation are both God's job. My job is to love Leave it up to God. In Romans chapter 2, it says this, verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Yes, but against me also, you know? And it says this, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt? This is, this is key. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Oh my goodness, there's so many times in my life when I have felt like the right way to help someone come to Jesus is to point out how bad they were. To point out how much they needed Jesus. And yet Jesus himself doesn't do that. He doesn't go to Zacchaeus and say, Zacchaeus, you really need me. He says, Zacchaeus, I really need you. I need to spend some time with you. I just want to love you. I just want to be with you for a little while. You might never respond to me. But I came to seek and to save the lost, so I'm going to seek you right now, and maybe, maybe, saving will come. Love is my job. Judgment and salvation, that's God's job. Literally, there is no judgment coming from me. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, this is Paul saying that we have to judge one particular thing. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Paul, in this big context in 1 Corinthians 5, is talking about a guy who's doing something egregiously wrong. He is sleeping with his mom. It's weird. It might be his mother biologically. It might be his stepmother. We don't know. But it's gross. It's weird. It's wrong. And Paul says, kick that guy out of the church. Because listen, that's the kind of thing that is incompatible with a person pretending to be a Christian. But guess what? He literally says in the same chapter, he says, but I'm not telling you to judge anyone outside the church. In other words, once the dude is outside the church, stop judging him. The judgment only extends to moving him outside of the family of faith. But then once he's outside the family of faith, love him just like anyone else. You know, maintain whatever relationship you can maintain with this guy. Just don't admit that he's part of your church. Don't recognize that he's part of your church. He's outside the church, but you're still loving him because no one outside the fellowship of the family of faith gets judged by someone inside the fellowship of the family of faith. If there is ever a moment where you as a Christian feel the temptation to judge someone who doesn't claim to be a Christian, you have crossed the line. Because not even Jesus judges those people, at least not until the end. Judgment is done. Not from me. The only time it ever possibly could show up is if there's a person in my church I have a relationship with and they are living in some sort of sin that is egregious and needs to be addressed. Then judgment can be applied. But all other judgment, no. I'm just going to love those people as myself. I want to show you this one last passage, and then I'll give you a couple other things to fill in some blanks with. But this one last passage, it's a little bit longer, but it's something that I think leads to an incredibly profound point. It's in Acts chapter 10. This is after Jesus has risen from the dead, 
after Jesus has literally levitated off the planet up into heaven, and the people behind have received the Holy Spirit, and they've started to live like the church. However, a persecution has happened, and so they have spread out from Jerusalem, and they're all living in different places. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter is staying in a city called Joppa, and he is staying with a man who is a tanner, which is interesting because that means a person who spends a lot of time with dead things. And Peter should consider that to be a place of unclean living. But nonetheless, Peter's with him. Here's how the story goes. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. God shows up through an angel in a vision to Cornelius saying, go find Peter and bring him here. And Cornelius is like, well, I'm going to do it. So he does it. He sends away. And then we get to the story where Peter is. It says this, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And he's going to have a vision. And it says this, he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And the phrase all kinds of four-footed animals should lead us to believe that there were many more animals there than were considered clean by Jewish standards. There might have been pigs and stuff on there. And Peter says, surely not, Lord. Anytime a person in the Bible says no to God, I always want to know what's happening next because, you know, I'm really interested. But God is so loving, he just never blasts them with lightning from heaven, except for, you know, that one time in the Elijah story. But surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. That means Peter three times said, surely not, Lord. And God says, no, don't say that eat. And Peter's like, no. And God says, eat. And Peter's like, no. Peter is a stubborn dude. You know what I'm saying? He's strong-willed guy. Happens three times, then the sheet's taken away, and he still didn't do what God had asked him to do. Anyway, we skip ahead a little farther. And what happens is Peter then gets an angel to show up and say, Peter, there's some men downstairs. Go with them. And Peter's like, okay, now I will. I'll do that. So he goes with them. He goes up to Cornelius' house. He gets into Cornelius' house. And then we read this. It says, While talking with Cornelius, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. That means he walked into the house, and the first thing he said to the house is, You know what? I'm not supposed to be here. It's nasty for me to be here. Because y'all people are Gentiles and gross. But he says, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections. May I ask why you sent for me? And then what happens is Peter tells them about Jesus. And while he's talking about Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes on them. They begin experiencing the presence of the Spirit the same way that the disciples did on the day of Pentecost. It's this amazing moment where Cornelius and all his family become believers in Jesus. I mean, they already were followers of God, but now they're believers in Jesus. And it's wonderful and it's awesome. And and Christians love that passage because it shows us how a person as bad as a Gentile can actually become a believer. And they missed one major point The as bad as a Gentile should never have been part of the phrase. Because Peter's point, he says, but God has shown me that I should never call anyone impure or unclean. Times have changed. There was a time in the Old Testament when God made rules about people being clean or unclean. 
about priests who touching a dead body could make themselves unclean. There was a time in the past when cleanliness, spiritually speaking, was a thing. But no more, no more. Never call any person unclean or impure. Every single person is a potential child of God. Every single person has God's arms wide open, ready to hug them if they would just come a step closer. In other words, put it this way. Remember this. God loves literally everyone. I mean, everyone. I don't know how God loves Hitler. I don't know how God loves all the jerks that have been in my life. I don't know how God ever came around to loving me. Because as good as I think I am sometimes, I'm not. But God loves literally everyone. And I should never call someone impure or unclean. I'm out of time. A lot, but there are a couple things I want to just kind of close with to help you think through this stuff. Nothing has broken my heart more in the last 30 years than issues of loving someone else as myself. Sometimes my heart is broken because. I've found a way to love someone and then they didn't love me back. But more often, my heart is broken because I wasn't loving someone well and then found out how they needed it and didn't know what to do next. There have been a number of times in my life where a person who is a close friend of mine has come to me to come out to me, to tell me, that they had been struggling with same-sex attraction for most of their life, that they identified as one of the letters in LGBTQ, or they just felt like they weren't the right person that they were supposed to be. I've had so many conversations with close friends who have brought that up to me, and it's made me think, oh my goodness, this is not one of those issues where I can treat like it's a thing, like it's an acronym, like it's an out there sort of situation, like I can have opinions on a thing that I have no relationship with. No, this is a friend. This is a relationship. This is someone I already love, and now I, know I need to know how to figure out a way to love them as myself, even though they are not myself, even though I disagree with who they think they are and what they are doing. I disagree in so many ways, but Jesus never told me to try to find a way for me to agree with them, and he never told me to convince them to agree with me. He just told me to love them as myself, and I'm, I'm trying to figure that out, and it breaks my heart. And then my heart gets, in, gets even more broken when I look around me and I see other Christians who claim to be following Jesus. And the only people on the planet I'm supposed to judge are the other people who are claiming to be Christians. And I look at those other people who are claiming to be Christians and I see them not loving. I see them being agents of hatred or bigotry or denying that racism is a thing or, or ignoring the fact that systemic problems are a systemic problem unless the systemic problems are benefiting them. And then they're like, no, this is a good thing. Or, or the Christians who think that changing a law to get my comfort zone lifted is a good thing, but changing a law to get someone else's comfort zone lifted is a bad thing. I don't understand why Christians are the way they are, and it's breaking my heart. But Jesus says I need to love as myself. I need to love them as if I'm standing in the midst of their boots. I want to think of judgment first. But Jesus says love. I was sitting in a room. I've told you guys kind of part of this story. I was sitting in a room a number of years ago, uh, probably just two or three, and it was part of the group of pastors in town called the Pastors Alliance, and it's 100% African-American pastors and like 98% African-American congregations. And I was visiting this group because I was trying to learn more from them. 
And now they consider me a part of it, and they consider you guys a part of it. And as I announced a couple weeks ago, we're going to be donating $1,000 to a project that they're doing, which I'm really super excited about. And every time I say anything that's like, I don't really feel like I'm totally a part of this thing yet, they're like, no, you're a a Pastors Alliance member. You guys, you're all the way in. Which is weird, because the couple years ago, when I was sitting in that room, one of the guys, who's now the president of the organization, looked me in the eye and said, Jeff, while he was yelling at me, you're a white supremacist. And I thought to myself, where's my hood? I thought to myself, I've never even owned a Confederate flag. I thought to myself all kinds of things that proved to myself I was a better person than that guy just accused me of being. He called me a white supremacist to my face. Well, I should let him have it. I should let him know how supreme I really am. That didn't come out right. Maybe the loving thing in this moment to do would be just to keep my mouth shut and listen. And so I sat there for a number of years, and I bought books, and I read White Fragility, and I read The Color of Compromise, and I read Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited, and I read... um, let the oppressed go free. And I read a number of other books to try to help me understand the perspective of the African-American community and where they're coming from and what they're dealing with and what they have been dealing with. And in the last number of years, I've fallen deeply in love with the community of faith that I've developed around that whole world that I didn't know before the African-American experience and the experience of other people of color who have experienced weird sorts of oppressions in multiple ways. And it all started from just, I wanted to learn how to love them. But the problem is, now that I love them, my heart breaks for them. And it's painful a lot of times. But in the process, I have this other guy, this other friend of mine, and he is all in on Trump. And he thinks Trump is the savior of the world. And he thinks that the one thing that is more important than any other thing is that we get more guns out there. And so I'm in a conversation with him over Facebook, and he says, let's talk in person. It's ish by Zoom. And so we do a video chat, and he says, I'm sending you a book. And he sends me this book called First Freedom, a book that claims that the most important of all of our freedoms is the ability to carry a gun. And that's the book he sends to me. And so I read through it. I take detailed notes. I try to understand where he's coming from. And I learn more things about the perspective of that mindset than I had ever learned before. And then we have a conversation. I'm like, I still don't agree with you, but you know, I'm, I'm going to stick with Jesus on this whole turn the other cheek thing. And I'm not going to go all the way to, to this particular perspective of the book. And we're kind of okay. And it kind of ends cordially, but our Facebook relationship has sort of ended. And that breaks my heart but here's the deal Jesus never said that love is going to be comfortable or easy he never said that I'm going to be able to find my niche of community and love those neighbors as myself to this day, I still have to find a way to love conspiracy theorists and anti-vaxxers and Christian nationalists and other nationalists. And I have to find a way to love the annoying Democrats and the annoying Republicans. And I have to find a way to love the people who don't care about any of those other things that I kind of started caring about now. And I have to find a way to love my white brothers and sisters. And I have to find a way to love my black brothers and sisters. And I have to find a way to do all this stuff. And it's not easy and it's not comfortable, but you know, I just have to make that commitment and I want you to do it with me. And so the last thing I want us to take home with us is this phrase, this idea. It says, I will literally love literally everyone and people will blame me for it. I want to be the kind of person like Jesus who will love a person in such a way that the other people who see me think I'm wrong. I want to be the kind of person who loves another person beyond what they deserve, who loves another person beyond what makes sense, who loves another person just because that's the kind of thing my Savior would do. And you know what's interesting? Here's the kicker. If Jesus hadn't loved Zacchaeus that way, would salvation have come to that house? You know what's interesting? By not doing any sort of 
evangelism. Jesus saved Zacchaeus by loving him. We don't have a clue what's going on in the life of the people around you. That person who's irritating, that person that you can't stand, that person who is the other person to you, you have no idea what God is doing in that person's heart. You have no idea what God is doing in that person's life. And you have no idea what an act of love from you could do to trigger the act of God in them. You have no idea. None of us have any idea. But I'll tell you what, I don't want to miss it. If I have an opportunity for my love to unlock something in another person where they come to Jesus, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Even if the world blames me for it, I'm going to do it because I don't want to miss out on something God might be doing. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.